0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi and welcome to Archive Sleuth, the podcast in which I, Georgina Asfow, ferret around in the archives to unearth stories of the extraordinary In ordinary past lives. In today's episode, a nun reports from the front lines of the French Revolution and bears her soul in letters of maternal friendship. The French Revolution has long fascinated me. The overthrow of the ancient regime would send shockwaves around the world and embroil Europe in war for a generation. It would usher in huge societal and political change and form a backdrop to immortal cultural creativity. It was an age of giants, of Bonaparte, Byron and Beethoven, but it was also the age of millions of now-forgotten people whose lives were swept up in the sea change swirling around them. I got to know a little of just one of these lost lives on a recent visit to the British Library. My interest in the French Revolution led me to request to see a manuscript volume intriguingly titled Correspondence Relating to France, including many letters from English nuns at Paris and elsewhere, and particulars concerning the French Revolution. I was presented with a heavy volume, binding together dozens of letters from a variety of people letters from men and women, nuns and clerics, and secular people, in French and English. I gingerly leafed through the pages, trying to adjust to a new handwriting style with each turn of the page. The volume was a giant jigsaw puzzle, as I tried to work out which letters were written by the same person, and which, if any, were direct responses to others. Yet just before I despaired of making sense of it all, I found a thread, a set of seven letters written by a nun in Paris in 1788 and 1789. This placed her right at the epicentre of the first year of the Revolution, an eyewitness to those watershed months. But how much, I wondered, would a nun be aware of the history happening beyond her convent walls? Well, it turns out rather a lot from the very first letter of hers i came across dated the seventh of december 1788 it was clear that although she was a nun she did not live a closeted existence behind her cloister doors this nun was very much attuned to the outside world you hope things grow better with us in france the last extremity has been drove off by monsieur necker's own interest alone till the states assemble in the meantime payments from the public banks are retarded several months which distresses most people. We have our share, but hope in a short time, to receive what should have been paid the beginning of last September. It's better to wait than lose all. In these short sentences she was describing nothing less than the fall of the absolute monarchy which had ruled France for nearly two hundred years. The last extremity was national bankruptcy. France had spent most of the 18th century fighting costly wars across the globe, from Europe to Canada to India. These had been funded largely by loans. But by the late 1780s, her enormous debts had to be repaid. But France had lost swathes of resource-rich colonies, and had made little material gain in her wars. Tax revenues were low, and to cap it all, manufacturing was in a slump. At the same time, a series of bad harvests had driven bread prices skywards. The people were starving and angry. Faced with collapse, King Louis XVI recalled his erstwhile finance minister, Jacques Necker, and appointed him chief minister of France. Necker was not shy of taking radical action. One of his first steps was to recall the Estates General, the National General Assembly that had not met for over 170 years. This was the end of the absolute rule of the king, and it was the meeting of this States Assembly, in the spring of 1789, that our nun looked forward to in her letter. When the Estates-General met, the Third Estate, made up of those delegates who were not of the nobility or clergy, broke away and declared themselves a National Assembly committed to writing a constitution for France. This was revolutionary. Aghast, the King sacked Necker and brought troops up to Paris. The outraged populace erupted into violent insurrection, and our nun was there to see it. In early August she wrote, I am in expectation of hearing from you this post, as I fear you have been alarmed for us on account of the surprising change in affairs since my last to you. The protection of God has been so strong and visible in favour of this great city that all hearts are overflowing with gratitude. The public papers will inform you of particulars, some false and some true, which I shall not aim at entering into. Let it suffice to use an old saying, that desperate cases must have violent remedies. That of France was publicly known to be such. A surprisingly pro violent sentiment to read from a nun, but one that becomes understandable as the letter continues. In three days, a national bankruptcy would have taken place, instead of which, it is made high treason to say that such a thing will happen. The Hotel de Ville, the seat of the Paris City Council, Is now in possession of millions of money that people had privately endeavoured to draw out of the kingdom, but were detected and brought back to the bank. By the same vigilance, corn was discovered, and our market plentifully supplied, though a famine was close at our doors, not having three days' provisions remaining in the city, and the country reduced to feed on bran or bean bread, if they could be so happy as to procure it. The violence culminated in perhaps the most famous incident of the revolution the storming of the Bastille prison, a solid stone symbol of royal authority. Our letter-writing nun, although she didn't herself charge into the prison, was there in spirit. The taking of the Bastille in two hours is looked upon as an evident mark of the divine protection, for had it lasted only ten hours, we should have been blocked up with cannon and armies all around us, and starve, die by the sword, or surrender was all the choice, and the latter The city and its guards was determined never to do. The attack happened at the House of Benediction of the Blue Nuns, who are near this formidable prison. The soldiers ascribed their success to the divine assistance provided them by these good nuns, and went at night to thank them. The soldiers she refers to here may have been the very recently formed civilian militia or deserters from the royal army who joined in attacking the Bastille. Whoever exactly they were, their meetings with the nuns had not yet ended. The next morning they went again to the convent and desired there to sing a Te deum, a hymn of thanksgiving, which they willingly granted. The officers, soldiers, and as many as could enter the church joined them in a military manner, the drums beating and swords held up, but, in stepping into the convent with weapons, the revolutionaries crossed the line. It is made deaf to any guard or soldier to enter into the out apartments of religious with any kind of arms, or to ask them for any money or provisions, explained our nun. Two were hung up at the court of val de Grasse for frightening the nuns, and if God had not given me a presence of mind, twelve, perhaps, would have suffered before our doors, but I had prevent our nuns, in case any of the mob should come, so that they was not intimidated. Our nun interceded to ensure that none of the soldiers approaching her convent should meet a grisly death at the end of a rope. Strict inquiries being made of their behaviour, which ended very civilly, I gave a certificate of their good comportment. In the immediate aftermath of the storming of the Bastille, the nun appears to be a fervent supporter of the revolution. We are in much greater security than we could have expected in such a sudden change, and I may say, in more honour and esteem than has ever been publicly showed to religious houses since I have abode in France, as the city ascribes their preservation to the prayers of religious and pious souls. The keys of the Bastille were taken the next morning to the high altar of St. Genevieve and a high mass of thanksgiving sung. The honour and esteem that was being shown to the religious houses in July 1789 would not long continue. The destruction of the Bastille was a great symbolic gesture for the tearing down of absolutism, but it did not erase the legacy of crippling national debt and food shortages. On the 8th of October, the nun wrote... I cannot well describe the distress of bread and money this kingdom is reduced to by ill-managers and evil hearts, who have used all their malicious endeavours to bring on a famine. It's to be hoped some considerable discovery is made. Some parts of Paris has been without bread for three days together, and all that can be had is unwholesome. The shortage and high cost of bread was a key spur behind the October march on the Grand Palace of Versailles when a crowd of thousands of market women, joined by some men, walked the thirteen miles from Paris to Versailles. Some of the women forced their way into the palace, and after deadly confrontations with the guards, succeeded in persuading King Louis Sixteenth, his Queen Marie Antoinette, and the National Constituent Assembly, to return with them to Paris. This pivotal moment in the Revolution, the point at which the people asserted their sovereignty and the King, was made a prisoner in his own capital city, is described with remarkable understatement in the nun's October letter. The court of Versailles was removed yesterday to the Louvre in Paris, of more concern to her were the measures being taken to save the economy and the people from destitution. All who have any revenues are obliged to contribute largely to the national debts. Church plate and all unnecessary ornaments are desired to be sent to make money. The divine goodness will, I hope, enable us to wade through this scene of poverty and distress. I think it's so like being forced to make bricks without straws. They cannot help it. It's better pinch six or eight months than lose all one has. Less than a month after writing these words, the Assembly voted to place the property of the Church at the disposal of the nation. It was one of the first policies in an attempt, during the Revolution, to de Christianize France. By October, our nun, although optimistic, could not help but acknowledge which way the wind was blowing. You need not be afraid of our remaining to a greater distance from you, in case what has been talked so much on in England should happen, but never was there less danger, I think, than at present. You will be surprised when I tell you that had we been broke up, I was determined to use my best efforts to be admitted to England. But this is only between us. A willingness to go to England was a surprising secret indeed. Since the Reformation and the establishment of the Church of England in the 16th century, Catholicism had, to all intents and purposes, been outlawed in England. Adherents of the Catholic faith became a dwindling minority and were a marginalised and persecuted group. But despite this, a number of families, some wealthy and powerful, tenaciously stuck with Catholicism. For these English Catholics, a life of open dedication to their faith required exile. After King Henry VIII dissolved the monasteries in the 1530s, becoming a nun was no longer a career path in England. So, in 1598, a convent was established in Brussels for English Catholics, followed soon by about 20 other convents in France and other parts of Catholic Europe. Over the next 200 years, around 4,000 women left their country to enter these convents. One of these women was Mary Bond who took the name Mary-Claire Joseph of Jesus when she took her vows. She is our letter-writer. I could find scant information on Mary-Claire's life. The surviving records of her convent, the English Benedictines in Paris, reveal that she took her vows in 1762, when she would have been about twenty-eight. By the time of the French Revolution, she was in her mid-fifties, and had been elected to the position of prioress, the head of the community. Who her parents were, I do not know. Though it is possible they were reasonably well off, as the English convents depended on generous dowries from the families of their nuns to survive, and it is possible that the family hailed from Lancashire. This is a county in the northwest of England where Catholicism survived stronger than elsewhere. Mary Clare makes regular references to Lancashire in her letters, so this seems as plausible a home for her as any. These bare details aside, all that I know about Mary Clare has been deduced from those seven letters at the British Library. But they were revelatory, not for the facts of her life, but for her personality, which emerged clearer with each page. They wanted to learn more about this woman, this 18th century English woman who spent her life as a nun in France, who wrote so vividly to her friend. Mary Clare's friend, her correspondent for all of these letters, lived in the village of Wycliffe in the county of Yorkshire, again in the north of England. Her name was Mrs Tunstall, and although her first name is never given, she was most probably the wife of Marmaduke Tunstall. He was an ornithologist who had inherited a family estate at Wycliffe. Marmaduke was a Catholic, and, like many sons of prosperous Catholic families, had been educated abroad at an English seminary in Douai, France. In her letters, Mary claire never names Marmaduke, but she does make occasional references to Mrs. Tunstall's family as being the Peregrines. Marmaduke was most famous for being the first ornithologist to describe the Peregrine Falcon, so could this have been an amusing nickname for his brood? It seems too remarkable a coincidence for our Mrs Tunstall not to be Marmaduke's wife. Although I cannot be absolutely certain, it seems the women knew each other because the Bond and Tunstall families were closely connected. In one of her letters, Mary Clare writes, Mr. Tunstall is in the right about our dear mother Constable. Constable was Marmaduke's surname at birth. He changed it, later in life, to inherit from his uncle. Whether or not family ties were the spark for their friendship, the women's relationship developed into that of teacher and student. Mrs. Tunstall was eager to lean on her prioress friend for religious guidance. You never have or will offend me by any question you ask, Mary Clare assured her in December 1788. Yet although Mary Clare was willing to help, a male authority figure, an unnamed priest, had imposed an injunction on her to prevent her doing this. As Mary Clare explained, my holy friend did it more to encourage me than disappoint you. I have, naturally, though you may be surprised at it, a difficulty to disclose what passes within my own heart, and a strong bent to a hidden life. So you see, he treated me as he knows me. If necessary, he will extend his permission." in time he did so and by january 1789 mary Clare happily reported he said i had interpreted his meaning in too severe a sense and has removed all constraint on this one condition if my letters are of any consolation or benefit to yourself it appears they were from that time onward large sections of mary Clare's letters are devoted to responding to mrs tunstall's questions on faith in February she wrote, I beg of his divine majesty to dilate your heart with the knowledge of those treasures his love conveys to us securely under this base covering, and you will with an humble exultation repeat, glory to God on high, peace on earth to men of good will. I wish you, my dear daughter, to take these words, which were given me for you, and use them as your constant aspirations during the day, having at proper times made them the subject of your entertainment with God in prayer. She was especially concerned in allaying Mrs. Tunstall's anxieties, which appeared to have been many in number. I have great confidence that God will inform your heart and fortify you against those anxious fears and perplexities which deprive you of much good. Don't stand so nice upon your points in explicating your faults. There is no virtue in it at the bottom. Take courage, and make use of your very failings and imperfections, to become by them more faithful and perfect. That is to be done by practising humility and patience under your infirmities. Mary Clare took her responsibility towards Mrs. Tunstall very seriously. She concluded her letter in February by writing, I shall evermore look upon it as my duty to include you in the number of my spiritual daughters, which indeed I have done of some time, and you will partake in my motherly solace for advancing the divine honour in the good of your soul. Although religious counselling was central to the letters, It was far from the only subject, or purpose, of their pen-pal relationship. Mary Clare also had more worldly concerns. She was endeavouring, from distant Paris, to set up a school in Lancashire, and Mrs Tunstall appears to have been assisting her. In December 1788, Mary Clare wrote that inquiries made locally had confirmed the real necessity that county is in for a boarding school of pious and genteel education for young persons. Two men involved in the scheme had already presented some families with the near prospect of a school in their county, which much delights the good parents. Mary Clare had been tasked with finding a suitable governess for the school in France, but reported in December to have been disappointed by her first choice. One difficulty occurs, she wrote, which is a just objection Mr. Pennington makes to the person I had designed to execute our plan. He knew her when at Paris, and assures me she has the... But whatever the woman had cannot be said with absolute certainty, as the next words have been blotted out in black ink. Whether Mary Clare or Mrs. Tunstall chose to erase these words is a mystery, but squinting through the criss-crossings, it is just possible to make out what I think are the words, king's evil. The king's evil, or scruffula, is a tuberculosis swelling of the lymph glands, creating abscesses on the neck. It derived its name, due to a belief in England and France, dating back to medieval times, that the disease could be cured by the touch of a king. I did not know anything of it, Mary Clare protested, or should not have thought of her as quite out of character to have a governess in such a state of health. Mary Clare soon found a replacement, A woman named Miss Carter, who sailed from France to England in May 1789 and lodged with a family in Lancashire while she hunted down a suitable building for the school. But while Mary Clare was satisfied in the character and health of her chosen governess, Miss Carter had one key drawback. She had no money of her own. The school could not pay her a salary yet, so how long Miss Carter would be willing to stay in Lancashire was uncertain. In fact, Mary Clare was struggling to pull together enough investors to get her school plan, her design as she called it, off the ground at all. With every letter came more bad news. Another wealthy acquaintance had declined her appeal for a contribution. Another wealthy acquaintance had, after two months, four months, eight months, still not responded to her appeal. Throughout these setbacks, Mary Clare never lost confidence that her school would eventually become a reality. I conclude, my dear friend, that God will try my confidence, but not fail us in the end. Whether the school ever was opened, I don't know. It certainly had not opened by the end of 1789. Mary Clare's determination to open a school in Lancashire is an interesting indication that, after thirty years in exile, her links to the places and people of her birth had not weakened. Yet while the school plans shuffled along, Mary Clare was kept busy with charity much closer to her adopted home. The bad harvest and national bankruptcy of 1788 had been followed by a viciously harsh winter that gripped northern France. Mary Clare wrote, in January 1789, The hand of God is heavy upon us by the severity of the weather, frost that has exceeded by several degrees that of the year nine. It has continued near upon two months, no sign of breaking, bread and all necessaries of life scarce, almost to a famine, and exorbitantly dear, poor working people, cannot exercise their trades to gain a support of bread and water for themselves and families. At the beginning, the curate of our parish and several others made inquiries how these poor souls keep themselves alive, and they answered that they found time so hard that they had determined to eat only once in twenty-four hours, hoping they could keep themselves alive that way. Mary Clare and her fellow nuns were kept busy. The day before I received your favour, I had given orders that relief should be given to every one that came to ask for it, so much as would support nature for twenty-four hours, either in money or food. We sent yesterday to fetch a mother of seven small children, fearing her bashfulness should hinder her asking help, as often as she wanted it. She had a child at her breast, and being asked if she had eaten anything that day, she fell a-crying and said she had taken up a piece of bread, but before she could get it into her mouth, the children for hunger tore it from her lips. I shall make your heart ache, my dear friend. Thank God no one has perished near us. Mary Clare herself struggled in that long winter. In February, she wrote, I have been mostly confined to my bed ever since the 27th of December. The severity of the weather and the damp that succeeded it overpowered the indifferent state of health I had been in of five months past. This must have been an alarming report for Mrs. Tunstall, as Mary's Clare's health was already fragile, by her letter of the 7th of December, 1788. As to my not being able to lay down, she wrote then, I can give no exact answer from what it proceeds. It came suddenly as well as I remember, and not finding the remedy of sitting upright, I suffered violent convulsive agitations in my stomach, so that the bed shook till the curtain rings rattled on the rod. By April, she had no better news to share. My health having grown gradually worse from last December, I am now just capable to scrawl a little and pursue my letter the first opportunity. Her handwriting in this letter is indeed shakier. She refused, though, to be fatalistic. You need not be in pain about me. I do not think at present that God designs to take me out of this world, but I think it is for a good end he is pleased to purify me. Her illness was a blessing, securing her from the inveterate ruse of pride and self-complacency or so her priest assured her. As the freezing winter gave way to spring and summer, Mary Clare appeared to turn a corner. At the end of May she wrote that, My heart, my head and hands are very free from pain, so it costs me much less than you think for to write. By the 8th of October she reported, I was ill a month with the gout in my stomach, and took my pen as soon as I was able. I have been ever since, and still am, tolerably free from it. This comparatively positive note on her health made the discovery at the end of this letter all the more unexpected. When I came to the final page on which Mary Clare had written Mrs. Tunstall's address, I found beneath it the words, In Mrs. Tunstall's hand, the last letter my dearest friend ever wrote, she dying on the 22nd of the November following. Mrs. Tunstall heard the news of Mary Clare's death from a monk named Placid Naylor, the confessor of the English Benedictine nuns. He wrote to Mrs. Tunstall on November 26th, and this letter I also found in the British Library volume. Last Sunday, this pious family had the sensible sorrow to lose their worthy prioress, Reverend Mother Mary Clare Bond. Naylor's letter sheds a clearer light than Mary Clare's did on the true extent of her ill health. Her ailments included suffering a contraction of the feet, thighs, and legs, which had left her incapable of changing her posture for the last ten months. She died, ultimately, of breast cancer, which Naylor believed must have given her pain for a long time, though only one or two people knew of it. Judging by the seven letters sent to her over the previous year, Mrs. Tunstall was not one of the people who knew Mary Clare was dying. Naylor, anticipating the shock, tried to reassure Mrs. Tunstall that Mary Clare had borne her illness and final hours with remarkable virtue, patience, and resignation. This description tallies with the attitude of acceptance Mary Clare adopted to her poor health, but it reads to me as a rather flat summary of a woman who also comes across in these letters as brimming with energy, a woman determined to remain useful, and a woman enthralled to the end by the revolution she found herself in the midst of. At the time of her death, the French Revolution was only just beginning. So momentous were the events occurring outside the convent walls, that Placid Naylor felt it necessary to add a note at the end of his letter. P.S. Times are surprisingly troublesome to all ranks of persons, the sole independents who have nothing to lose, only accepted. What end will start up, good or bad, appears now wholly uncertain. The worst, however, is feared especially as such numbers of every denomination appear miserably void of every good principle. For the surviving nuns of the English Benedictines in Paris, it was soon to be the end of an era. The land that for two hundred years had been a welcoming exile for English Catholics was about to become a most dangerous place to be. During the bloody terror that would see thousands of people massacred, priests and nuns made up 6% of all victims. The monk Placid Naylor was imprisoned. He escaped execution, but died soon after his release, in 1795. By then, church property had been nationalised and confiscated. Christianity had effectively been banned, and rival religions, the cult of reason and the cult of the supreme being, were launched. In the summer of 1794, Mary Clare's Benedictine nuns were imprisoned in a castle at Vincennes, as nuns, the women, were enemies of the anti-Christian regime. But worse, these nuns were from England, a country with whom France was now at war. The women, however, were lucky. They were allowed to leave France in 1795 and return to England, where, along with other exiles from revolutionary France, they established the first Catholic convents in the country for over 200 years. The Benedictine nuns finally settled in a monastery in Staffordshire, in central England. The monastery survived there until very recently, it only closed at the end of 2020. The monastery's survival almost to the present day is an interesting, tangible link to the French Revolution, and to the life of a woman who would perhaps now be forgotten were it not for the letters she wrote to a friend in those most extraordinary times. Thank you for listening to this episode of Archive Sleuth. I'll be back with a new story from the Archives on Thursday, 10th of March. Please subscribe to Archive Sleuth wherever you like to listen, so you don't miss it. In the meantime, if you enjoyed this episode, it would be fantastic if you could spare just a few seconds to rate or review the show on your favourite podcast app and recommend Archive Sleuth to your friends and family. Archive Sleuth was written, narrated, and produced by me, Georgina Asfau. Mary Claire Bond's letters are held at the British Library. Full details of the manuscript volume are in the show notes. The music you heard included Waltz of Treachery by Kevin MacLeod, La Marseillaise performed by Angelsch, Or Bona Jesu by Karl Reissiger, performed by Les Petits Chanteurs de Montagny, and "Sonatina in C Minor by Kevin MacLeod.